Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. What happened in Russia this past weekend? Seems as if the Wagner Group, the mercenary group, uh, were marching on Moscow. Did anybody see this coming? We're going to look at this from a couple of different perspectives. Uh, in one, uh, Robert Hubert, who's an assistant professor of political science at the University of Calgary, will join us and give us his perspective on what happened. We'll also get word on the ground in Ukraine. Matthew Best, a freelance journalist for the Globe and Mail and Ottawa Citizen, will talk to us the, from there. And back home, well, we're looking at the upcoming Toronto mayoral election with Sabrina Nanji of Queen's Park Observer. And we're going to hear from Coach Sal himself. John Salavatis is going to join us and talk about what's going on with the Tiger Cats and why haven't they won a game yet this year. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. you got to try to dig down and, and, and get some ideas as to just what happened in Russia uh, this past weekend. I mean, most of us woke up, I guess, on Saturday morning to the news uh, that it seemed as if uh, the group that we've talked about, the, the mercenaries that we talked about, the Wagner group, were marching on Moscow. Uh, the, the head of the group, of course, Yevgeny Prizhkokhin, uh, has been at odds with uh, Putin and his, uh, his uh, major uh, folks in his cabinet, I guess, for quite some time now. Uh, but nobody ever thought it was going to get to this stage, or did they? Uh, our next guest is going to try to shed some light on that for us. Uh, Robert Hubert is an associate professor of political science at the University of Calgary and also a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. Uh, so glad you could join us. An awful lot of us are confused. An awful lot of us are wondering what happened and what the ramifications are. Uh, how did you react when you heard the news on Saturday morning? Well, I'm, it's just as much confusion as everyone else, because part of the problem in any war is the is trying to get straight stories out of this. Mm-hmm. In this particular issue, in, in regards to within the inner workings of Russia and what could, and once again, I want to stress the word could, be some sign of coup-like behavior. I mean, that is big. Um, and so I guess confusion, uncertainty, um, those were sort of the major feelings I was having as I was trying to make any sense of what was happening. But in that circumstance, uh, there's going to be dissension, as you say, and, and lots of misinformation. That's that's almost as expected. That old phrase, you know, that uh, in war, truth is the first casualty. But was he actually, in, in your mind, was he actually intent on moving into Russia? Or was was this a threat? Was it, I, We're not quite sure what the intentions were, what motivated him to actually make this move. Well, that's just it, because there's two schools of thoughts that's emerging within sort of those that are watching this very closely. There's the one school that this was a very serious military effort to attack the Putin administration. And there are those that are still saying that he represented a real threat and had a real chance of basically displacing Putin. There's another train of thought, which is almost the exact opposite, um, and that is he knew that his time was up. Uh, There'd been problems between him and particularly the defense minister for about the last month. There were all sorts of reports that Wagner were not receiving the type of munitions and resupply that he had been calling for and that this was the actions of the last gasp of a of an individual that knew that he was on the way out. And you can see the way that from from our perspective looking at it, they look exactly the same, but they represent two very different uh, realities for the Russians. And, and, and then it, that's, that's, I think, the thing that 
puzzles an awful lot of us as to just, you know, it was almost a suicide attempt. I mean, did he actually think that that he had a chance of ta- overtaking Russia and uh, well, Putin specifically in, in the Kremlin? I mean, he has a, a, a very, very uh, elite force, of course, but uh, I, I guess, you know, there's so many sidebar questions here, Professor, one of them being as much as he did move, we're told he was a couple of hundred miles away from, from the, the, the border of Moscow, uh, the, the city limits of Moscow, uh, with very little resistance, which led some people to speculate that maybe a lot more people were sympathetic to, to his cause than, than we're letting on, maybe even people within the military. Yeah, that's the problem, because once again, there's conflicting reports, A, how far he got and how many troops he had as he moved in. I mean, the largest numbers that people have been, at least that I've been seeing in the open sources, is that he had maybe about the possibility of drawing upon 10,000. I mean, 10,000 sounds like a lot, and it is by, by, say, Canadian standards. But given the capabilities that the Russians have, most people were saying that on a, that on a direct assault, they were going to be wiped out before they even got anywhere close to Moscow. Now... The question that you raised at the beginning, though, is the important one. Was he hoping to have further support within the the Russian um, elites, within the um, Russian ruling political system? In other words, was he trying to get support from uh, those that are against Putin as he moved inward? That doesn't seem to have happened at all. Um, There were reports immediately that suggested that Putin's regime was being shook, shaken. But if you look at most of the reports today, it looks as if he, the, the Wagner leadership, was the one that was really the, the weaker of the two players here. Uh, but once again, with these type of things, when a coup is actually going to be happening, you won't know about it till it has actually occurred if he was drawing from others outside of his organization. And that's, I think, what struck an awful lot of us was uh what are his ambitions uh, did, you know did, did he want to be the ruler did he want to overthrow putin or was he just looking for leverage yeah or was he i mean the, the, those that are sympathetic to him go so far as to say that he was looking out for the uh the well-being of his um of of his men um you know once again uh it's difficult to to know the motivations of this individual um, if he, you know, once again, we don't know for certain, but say just for the sake of argument that he was moving from a position of strength rather than that of weakness. And in fact, that his intelligence, his uh, his contacts were, were suggesting that Putin was, in fact, vulnerable. That would be one of the explanations of what he did. But if it was to have an overall coup, it looks as if it was pretty badly planned. You can't just simply take your troops in moving in and try to come in. I mean, you know, we have a mythology that Caesar did that to, to take power, but the, the historical reality is that if you're going to do that, you need to have your people lined up on the inside. You need to ensure that the 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 individual that you're trying to direct the coup against um, can't consolidate. And we don't see any signs that there was anything within Moscow that was showing um, rising up against a Putin. And so this is why those that are saying this was the last gasp of a very desperate individual who knew his time was up seems to be the more powerful argument at this point in time. Quite the contrary to your point, isn't it, Professor, that uh, you know the, the army seemed to rally around uh, the Kremlin 
Um, and I don't know what their intentions were, but I mean, the, you know, uh, if anybody, and I, I know that, you know, when we look at, at what's going on with the Wagner group, I mean, they are not soldiers by trade. I mean, they are now because they're trained in there, but I mean, they're, most of them are ex-cons. Uh, he himself is an ex-con and, and not trained necessarily in, in military planning and expertise and things of that nature. Uh, and maybe this was, this was, you know, m- maybe him being laid bare that he doesn't have that, that, that mind for that kind of strategy. Uh, because it just didn't seem as if anything was happening at the other end. You're right. If, 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 if there was a plan and if the oligarchs were against Putin, as, as we've been hearing about for the last well year now, since the war is not going well for Russia, uh, you'd think there'd be some, some sort of activity in, in Moscow, too. And we didn't, at least didn't hear anything like that in, in the reporting that we saw. Nothing at all. And I would think that, I mean, the Russians have... Plant down. I mean, there's very little freedom of uh, expression within Russia, but with social media and that, if if there were signs of um, of actions, uh, you know, the seizure of say um, uh, buildings or 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 the seizure of officials, I'm quite sure that we'd at least be hearing bits and pieces of that. And I've seen absolutely nothing. The other thing too that ties also to something that you said is that the historical record of a coup against a military leader in the middle of the of a war is very low people will automatically no matter what they think of the leader will tend to 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 go for the benefit of the state i mean even in 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 world war ii when germany's on its last legs remember there were a couple of coup attempts against hitler and and the basic reaction of of the German military as well as personnel was to rally around Hitler. So, I mean, even in in, in periods like that, that is the tendency. Um, and we saw nothing coming suggesting that there's anything else. And that's like I said, that's that's why it seems like he was it was a sort of a last throw of uh, of a set of dice rather than a pre really pre prepared plan. Uh- We've always heard that uh, that, that you know, Putin is one of these guys that plans. I mean, I, everybody is who's in a position like him, I guess, uh, you know, autocrats, dictators, things of that nature, uh, want to make sure that nobody becomes a real threat to them. Uh, and it looked to us anyway as if Prashogun was at least heading down that road. Uh, you know, he had armed people with him. He had support of his, of his troops, certainly. Uh, and, and I would imagine that, that Putin was looking at that and figured this guy's getting too big for his britches, if I could use an old colloquialism. Uh, and something had to be done about it. But I, I guess the question a lot of us are asking is, is what made him stop? You know, all of a sudden he says, you know, I, and he mentioned something about he didn't want to shed Russian blood. Uh, doesn't seem to have a problem doing that in any other circumstance, but something made him stop and go away. What, 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 and we're we supposed to believe it was the president of Belarus that interceded, uh, but he's characterized as just a puppet for Putin anyway. So what, what, I know we're into the realm of speculation here, but what what happened there to, to turn this thing around, literally? Well, there's probably three possibilities. The first one is he lost his nerve. In other words, often in these type of circumstances, when the individual is going and realizing the type of odds that they're going at, if it's an act of desperation, and as they're getting closer and closer, they're realizing that they're simply not going to come out of this. Uh, that sometimes when you'll see individuals fleeing and just trying to to break down. We saw this happen in the um, the coup against Yeltsin, if you'll recall, where yeah. there was a, a number of, of um, senior Soviet, still Soviet uh, Russian 
uh, leaders tried to oppose uh, Yeltsin or uh, Gorbachev's regime. You remember the attacks on the Russian White House? And they just lost yep. their nerve. They got drunk, they lost their nerves, and they stopped. That happens. Uh, the other thing that could have happened is that he just simply started realizing that his troops were perhaps not supporting him in the way that they, he thought they were going to. He could have seen that he was, you know, the troops were simply not following orders or following his lead, so to speak, and he may have decided to leave. And the third thing is something that we haven't figured out yet. Um, you know, was he offered a deal to get the, you know, basically to uh, to get out of town um, and he could uh, possibly keep his life? Um, and, and that's a possibility, too. Uh, it, I doubt that we find out anytime soon what the real reasons were why he, in fact, turned tail. Does this whole exercise, though, the, the, from the time that they started the march towards Moscow, uh, the characterization we heard through a number of observers uh, and analysts that appeared on just about all the major networks, I was well, probably like you, Professor Channel, surfing, looking to get this perspective and that perspective. Uh, but they all seem to, to agree that, that Putin has shown to be weak now. Has he? I mean, th this thing has gone away as quickly as it started, uh, and he still seems to be in a pretty good spot right now. There's a minority view, and I, I tend to be a little sympathetic to it. If anything, he has shown strength. Um, once again, uh, on the outside, when you see someone challenging an authoritative leader, you tend to say, "Okay, well, there's cracks here." That's you know, and that's you know, you've seen the same stories as I. Saying, sure. okay, well, you know, it's not as strong as it is. On the other hand, with internally, and the suspicions are that Putin, as he is his norm, responded ruthlessly against this individual. And so, what we know historically, whenever this happens, is that authoritative leaders use this as a as a excuse, example, opportunity to basically show anybody who's thinking about going against them just what that is going to cost. Um, so this may have actually paradoxically had the, uh, the possibility of strengthen, strengthening Putin's regime because it was unsuccessful. Uh, presumably he's marshalling his allies and he's going to be ruthlessly uh, destroying um, uh, his enemies behind the scenes. So. Um, you know, that type of action carried out, if you have no moral, you know, compass where you're not concerned about hitting families, hitting people that may or may, may not be involved, uh, that actually strengthens your position as an authoritative leader. Well, to that end, uh, no matter what they may have promised in the way of safe passage, uh, what happens to, to Prigozhin here? I mean, even if he's, don't worry, we're not going to go after you. Uh, as you mentioned, Putin's reputation is, yeah, he goes after his enemies, uh, not necessarily right away, uh, but they tend to fall off balconies or they're poisoned. I mean, you know, there, there's usually not a good ending to this. Uh, is is Prigozhin due to that same fate? Yeah, I think so. I think it's pretty clear that. And I mean, you know, there's all sorts of rumors floating now because he hasn't been seen despite the promises of safe passage and all the rest. Um, and again, uh, if Putin basically promises safe passage, and this is the paradox in, a, in an authoritative regime, if in fact that he has been promised safe passage and he shows up dead in the next day or so or poisoned or his family is, is, is somehow disappeared, elements of his family are disappeared 
Um, all of that, of course, will terrify anybody else who's thinking about challenging Putin. And so it has that, par- you know, lying and going back on your word actually strengthens authoritative leaders because it, it creates that fear factor. Uh, we in the West turn around and say, well, you know, no one's going to trust him now. Uh, that would be harmful in, in a Western context to give you a word and then to go back. And that may be true. But in 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 a, in a Russian ex, um, experience under an authoritative regime, no. And so I would not, you know, once again, pure speculation. But the fact that he hasn't been heard on, I would almost suggest that he's already dead um, at this point in time. But that's just merely me um, uh, being a little bit uh, joining in with, um, you know, trying to figure out what's going on without any real meaningful evidence. Well, I was I was of the same mind too, and we saw. I mean, the last I guess known shot we had of him was him driving out uh, with his troops there in a military vehicle and the adulation of the, the people on the street. Uh, but by the same token, I, I, I agree with you. I think Putin looks at this whole scenario now, as frightening as it might have been momentarily, as, as, well, I don't mean to be flippant, but a teaching moment, I guess, for his people. Say, here's what happens to the guys who stand up against me. Yeah. The other factor, too, is what's interesting, of course, is there have been a lot of people who've looked at the, the this widespread use of of uh, well basically you can't call it anything else but mercenaries rather than regular forces and and what happens when in fact you do have these semi-private armies that become so powerful and so part of the 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 the, the um, thinking of some is that the reason why he was starting to not have his troops properly resupplied because there's been all sorts of rumors that what really started his yeah. uh, discontent with the Putin administration is that he was claiming that the defense minister was not providing for enough resupply for just basic ammunition, food, and so forth. Now, what may be happening here, and it's even more fundamental, is that he may have been, or Putin may have come to the conclusion that he was becoming too powerful, even if he wasn't thinking of himself as power, and that this month-long squeezing of any capabilities to them was not a reflection of of Russia somehow running out of money or political will in Ukraine, but rather sort of a repositioning of of the mili- who's getting the military. In other words, do you just simply give it to your regular forces and try to diminish the the capability of the of the Wagner Group, uh, or is, did that just simply happen? And once again, we don't know. So exactly. it could be that he was being squeezed out a lot earlier than people were thinking. And so don't know that at that point. Or is the fighting going so bad in Ukraine that the Russian forces are, in fact, having the inability to get proper resupply? And Wagner just happened to be the ones that got uh, the first cut. Exactly. Again, very tells us very different things about that part of the war but without better knowledge bases, you know, we don't know. Professor, uh, great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. No, it's always my pleasure, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Professor uh, Robert Huber from the University of Calgary. And as he says, more to come on this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another perspective on, on the events of Saturday and, and what looked like an attempt of, of a coup uh, in Russia. And that's what was going on in Ukraine at the time. I mean, there's a war going on. I mean, that's, that's obvious. But what was the reaction when the news started to break about what was happening with the with the, the Kremlin? Uh, 
our next guest can offer some uh, perspective on that. He is Matthew Best. Matthew is a freelance journalist for the Globe and Mail and the Ottawa Citizen. He's on the ground in Ukraine and uh, is going to fill us in on exactly how they are responding to what's going on. Matthew, good to talk with you again. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Bill. Let me ask you, as, as the news broke uh, on, on that Saturday, uh, what what was going on? We we know that you know there was some concern and upset about missiles attacks that that very morning, of course, in in some cities, uh, and the fact that some debris from mus- missiles that were destroyed actually ended up killing some people. Uh, that seemed to be the headline story until we saw what was happening in in Russia. Uh, how did you respond, and and how did those in in the community respond? Well, I'll start off by telling you actually that missile debris that killed uh, five people uh, actually landed about a kilometer from where I'm staying. So that story was actually quite close to home, oh, uh, very wow. literally. But um, in terms of what was happening with whether we want to call it a coup attempt, a putsch, uh, a civil war uh, attempting to spark it, there was a kind of feeling here on the ground that this was um, – of all the things I could liken it to, this was almost like a, a major Netflix streaming event. Nobody could put their phones down. Nobody could put uh, their laptops away. Everybody was watching with intensity, not out of any particular love of Wagner or Prigozhin or anything like that. But it, it, this meant a sense of possible relief uh, in Ukraine that what was happening would uh, cause some instability, weaken the Russian regime and give the Ukrainians some breathing room. Well, and we heard that with the analysis that we were watching, of course, at the same time, is that uh, uh, they started talking about the ramifications. I mean, if, if in fact, Putin had to refortify uh, the Kremlin, uh, he's probably going to have to take some troops out of the uh, the, uh, the the war theater, of course, the, the theater in, in, in Ukraine, uh, which is probably the best thing that could happen for the Ukraine army at that particular time. I guess that never actually happened. Uh, but was there even a concern that it might alter the, the way that the war was going? There was concerns both ways of, you know, would this ease up the war? Because ultimately with, with Bakhmut being such a sort of important stage piece, not really a, a critical strategic city to take, but a very sort of um, propaganda piece and, and Wagner being the one that took it, um, would their most competent fighters in Wagner, and they are competent fighters regardless of what you want to say about their politics, would they – weaken the Russian effort or would Russia redouble that effort? There was this gross uncertainty here and there was a lot of panic uh, in those sort of early strikes that happened after that coup attempt was, is this Russia intensifying? As we saw, in fact, what they ended up doing, what Russia ended up doing was actually bombing Syria at the time and not Ukraine, very unfortunately for Syrians. Um, But it was a sort of climate and still is a climate of confusion of what's going to go on here. Um, nobody knows if this is going to cause a sort of uh, hardline, very heavy response internally to Russia or a very hardline, heavy response in theaters that they're operating in like Ukraine or Syria. Because what the one thing that is known is that they will not allow this to stand in any way. And they have been very humiliated by this on the public stage. But as as we started to find out who was doing this and, and that it was, a guy, in, in fact, of course, Bergosian, uh, was there concern? I mean, there had to be. I mean, they, they know this guy and they know what he's capable of. And uh, I know in, when you hear of a coup of a, a tyrant like Putin that may be a, the target of that of that coup, and that's what, what we're speculating, an awful lot of us were at the time. 
Um, you wonder who, okay, who's going to take over? Well, if it's this guy, uh, that could be worse news. That's old story about the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's not the case with this guy. He's this, this guy is, is, is a bad actor all the way around. And I'm sure there, there was some concern like, okay, take Putin out, but not with this guy. That's definitely true. I mean, this is a, a country of gangster politics and Prigozhin. And I must say as well, his the other commander of uh, Wagner is a, a guy named Dmitry Itkin, who's uh, by all accounts uh, a neo-Nazi, uh, an, an extremely bad guy. He's sort of the military commander by the, behind the scenes, and Prigozhin is kind of the face of this group. You want neither of them in charge. Uh, you can't say much good about Putin, but the one thing you can say is that he is a politician and he does play political games, um, which has some level of predictability to it. These guys, Utkin and Prigozhin, they're not guys you want taking over. Um, they would they would be considerably, considerably worse uh, for the state of affairs. These are people who have executed uh, their own men, not not prisoners, not the enemy, their own men uh, with hammers and mailed uh, those hammers to uh, diplomats in the most thuggish and brutal display of war crimes imaginable. You, these are not people you want in charge. These are not freedom fighters. What does this do to uh, to the mindset of, of the Ukrainian military, though? Uh, the counteroffensive has started, and we've heard you know that there have been some some small victories here. I, I don't know if it's going as well as they had anticipated, and, uh, but you know, was was there an idea that maybe okay, the, we've got the Russians on the run, they're they're disoriented, they, uh, they they're focused otherwise right now. Is is there a takeaway, a positive takeaway for for the Ukrainian offensive at this stage? I think there's a, a small positive takeaway for them, and that this does put Russia in that sort of weakened position that I mentioned. That they are not. Uh, it it's shown a very international uh, weakness on the public stage, and knowing that that's devastating for morale. I mean, soldiers fight on two things: they fight on morale psychologically, and they fight on logistics physically. Um, and to see that fracturing uh, in the Russian uh, regime is something that it's not necessarily something that you might think oh the, well this is going to cause a lot of people to surrender but it's something that any any sensible military mind would think well here's something i can take advantage of and they're definitely going to take that into account uh how far that will go remains to be seen because this is still the early stages where the everything is still being sorted out with what's happened with this code we've just learned <laughs> The amnesty may not be taking effect and the investigations may still be ongoing. So finding the footing and the right footing for the military to exploit is what's going to happen. But they do know something's there. This is undeniable at this stage that there is something to exploit there. What that something is remains to be seen. Well, and, and the ultimate goal, of course, is to push the Russians back across the border. Um, and in the absence of Wagner, and it kind of looks like they're not going to be a factor in the, on the Russian uh, it, side of things for the next little while, if at all, uh, if he even knows where they are now. Uh, does that weaken Russia's efforts here to try to, to counteroffensive uh, what Ukrainians do? It, well, it definitely does. I mean, Wagner, of like I said, of everything you can say about them, the one thing you can't say is that they weren't an effective infantry force. They might have been a, a shock force that used, you know, uh, penal recruits. They might have been extremely brutal. They might have committed a lot of war crimes, and those are all certainly true. But they were effective at what they did. But they were a, a unit of about 25,000, 50,000 people. So taking a small city like Bakhmut is something they're capable of. 
But the larger scope of what they could do was provide that propaganda victory. Now that's off the table. And what Russia is left with is those Mobix, those guys who've been, uh, you know, served draft papers and been called up after Russia lost her most competent fighters, even in the early stages of the war, 13 months ago, 12 months ago. Um, so for them to be gone, for the most kind of competent linchpin to no longer be in this country, uh, what they're left with is sort of the dregs, really, of uh, the Russian military. Some will be competent, some will be career officers, some will be guys they pulled off the streets. One of the stories that uh, actually it was the headline, I know you've been reporting about this and talking about this too, uh, was Putin's decision before all this started about moving nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, they call it. I mean, a nuclear weapon's a nuclear weapon. I mean, it's that tactical because it sounds like, oh, it's not one of our big ones. Uh, but the use of those uh, and, and the possibility of that uh, seems to seems to be back on the front burner as far as the Kremlin is concerned right now, uh, moving them uh, right near the Ukrainian border, we're told. Uh, is is that at play right now? And is the concern from the Ukrainian standpoint that uh, that that might be to Putin's tactic to try to to bring the hammer down? I still personally believe that uh, nuclear weapons are are a bluff. I think that would be extremely suicidal for Russia, um, and I remain fairly convinced that uh, Putin is not omnicidal. But it's definitely a power play. Uh, you know, Belarus has removed from its constitution that that they are not a nuclear power. Um, this is something Ukraine also uh, constitutionally adopted after the the fall of the USSR that these post-Soviet states, other than Russia, would not be nuclear powers. And to see that suddenly turn around is definitely a an intimidation tactic. I can't say that these would be deployed uh, for certainty. And I have on a very personal level, I have very strong doubts that they ever would be deployed uh, because I think that would ultimately provoke a, a kind of nuclear exchange that the world has never seen. And I don't think that's uh, Putin, the politician, not Putin, the gangster uh, is ready to do that. But it is a major development and it is a very concerning one uh, because it shows Belarus is sort of getting back involved again in this conflict after they had stepped back for many, many months. Exactly. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on here. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Matthew. Uh, please stay well and stay safe. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Well, thank you. Absolutely, Bill. Take care. Matthew Best, who is a freelance journalist. He's over in Ukraine right now as he reports for the Globe and Mail and for the Ottawa Citizen. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's election day, by-election day in the city of Toronto. Uh, they will elect a new mayor. And uh, to suggest it has been a controversial uh, race would be a, a massive understatement, I guess. Uh, just about everybody's weighed in with their opinion on this. And uh, the, the, the political volleys back and forth here have just been incredible to watch over the last little while. Uh, Perspective from the next guest that may shed some light on exactly what may be happening when they finally start counting the votes later on tonight. Sabrina Nanji joins us. She's the publisher of Queen's Park Observer. Uh, Sabrina, great to have you with us today. Uh, I, I know politics provincially is usually what we talk about, but uh, boy, this has been quite a race. And, and this does have some impact, I would think, on, on the premier and, and provincial politics as well, because even the premier got into the, and down and dirty with some of the candidates, didn't he? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right, Bill. I mean, Ontario definitely has skin in the game for this election. Um, and, and you're right, you know, the premier has fully waded right into it, despite promising at the outset that he was going to steer clear. Um, and he's made some, uh, some pretty big splashes, I should say. Uh, I was actually at Ford Fest over in Scarborough, where there will be a provincial by-election soon um, on Friday. And Ford was out there with, with Mark Saunders. They were glad-handing. Uh, you know, another candidate, Anthony Fury, was also there hoping to pick up some last-minute support. Um, and Ford has, you know, fully endorsed Mark Saunders, uh, who, who's long been his ally, uh, you know, personally and politically. Uh, this is the former police chief uh, in Toronto. And uh, he was uh, also an advisor on Ontario Place. He was part of the COVID vaccination task force. So he's done a lot of work for the province. Um, and they're, they're sort of making this Hail Mary pass uh, in the days leading up to today, Election Day to get people to get out the vote for Mark Saunders. You know, Ford was spotted with a Saunders sign on his front lawn. Um, and then he fully said, you know, during some government announcements, you know, please vote for, for Mark Saunders and, and tell your friends and family to do it. But what's interesting is that it doesn't really seem to have had much impact in the polls. And, you know, a lot of people will say the only poll that matters is really going to be the one tonight in Toronto. But we haven't really seen Mark Saunders move much from that uh, third place position in, in a lot of the polls we've been seeing. Although, uh, you know, that, that, that could, of course, change. But we, we've still got Olivia Chow as the front runner. Uh, she did seem to have a bit of a narrower lead uh, back, in, back down to the single digits uh, over Anna Bailau, who, who also got a high-profile endorsement from former Mayor John Tory. But again, you know, if if you like John Tory, which a lot of people did, uh, that, that's great for Bailau. It seems to have uh, given her a bump in the polls. But if you're looking for change, it could also be the kiss of death. So it's not over yet, but it's looking like Olivia Chow could could take the crown tonight. But Sabrina, right from almost day one when this campaign officially got underway, the the, the whole message here has been stop Chow. I mean, that, that seems to be even what the other candidates are spending more time on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Doug Ford uh, ha has said, you know, Olivia Chow would be a disaster. She's going to raise taxes um, and, and she would just be horrific for the city, which is is interesting coming from the premier, because as we know, you know, whoever is going to be in charge at, at City Hall is going to have to work closely with him. And, and Ford, while he's sort of attacking Olivia Chow, he's still promising to work with whoever ends up uh, winning this seat. So I think it's going to make for, uh, you know, some tension, uh, certainly. And they'll, they'll be focusing on relations between the province and City Hall. Uh, as we know, you know, Toronto and a, a bunch of other cities now are getting these strong mayor powers uh, with, with an eye to doing a lot of the heavy lifting for the Ford government's ambitious housing plan here. Um, but even Mark Saunders himself has, you know, this new campaign campaign, uh, tactic that he's taking, you know, that I'm the person that you need to vote for to stop Olivia Chow. But it really doesn't seem to be enough to knock her off her pedestal. Um, I, I think one thing I'm going to be looking out for is turnout tonight, because mm -hmm. as we know, in civic elections, turnout typically tends to be pretty much in the toilet. You know, it, it's abysmally low, usually uh, in, in municipal elections in particular. And so I think that especially if you're someone who's reading the polls, you see Olivia Chow having a healthy lead. If you're one of her supporters, you know, maybe you you don't go out and vote. Um, so I think that it's really going to be uh, crunch time for, for everybody, uh, all the candidates to really get out the vote and, and push their supporters to actually go out and, and cast their ballots today. Is the number of candidates going to be a factor here tonight? We mentioned there's over 100 people, I guess, that are going to be on the ballot. 
Uh, and and let's face it, I mean, some of them are fringe candidates. I guess most of them are fringe candidates, frankly. Uh, but there seem to be, anyway, enough people with that name recognition, which is pretty big, I think, when you, especially at municipal elections and especially with by-elections. Uh, I mean, you know, Olivia Chow, known to this community for quite some time. Uh, Mark Saunders, former police chief. Uh, a former deputy mayor is, is right up there. Anthony Fury, of course, is a columnist with the Toronto Sun. So it, it's not as if you, you they don't know any of these people right now. It's going to be interesting, I would think, though, to see if that name recognition translates itself into support, well, today especially. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think we can't really discount the factor that name recognition is playing here. I mean, Olivia Chow herself is well known. She ran for mayor uh, not too long ago in 2014. Um, You know, she's been a federal politician for a long time. And I think people know her, but they also kind of are familiar with um, a lot of her her politics and and policies of, you know, uh, she's run she's sorry been a politician for the ndp previously she's um one of the as the premier might put it a, a so-called lefty but you know she's proud of it and so i think that people um kind of maybe know what they're getting a little bit there have been questions of course and you know her political opponents will attack her on this front any opportunity they can because she hasn't really specified um how by how much she would raise taxes and you know what what chow says is that she wants to wait until she gets in there sees the budget you know, does the numbers. So I think, you know, she's kind of taking a bit of a pragmatic measured approach here. But of course, everyone can just kind of run with that. Her her enemies, her political enemies, uh, they're saying, you know, we don't know there's going to be a, a huge tax hike. Obviously, you know, that's not a, a very popular thing in, in any uh, election. But I think, you know, what with uh, Toronto in particular and property taxes, you know, not, not, Uh, I guess, generally being stagnant over the past few years, what with inflation, I think people are kind of expecting this to come down. But, uh, you know, Chow has certainly been attacked on on this front. And uh, it it really doesn't seem to be enough, certainly what the polls are telling us to to knock her down. So as much as these, as much as her opponents might try, I I think, um, you know, it's, it's still, it's still early in the day. Of course, you know, polls are opening in about 20 minutes here, but I I think that we might be seeing a a chow mayor, uh, mayorality uh, like for Toronto later on tonight. With that reality, and you're right, the numbers certainly look like that's the way it's going to turn out. And I know the premier says he'll work with whoever wins this thing. Uh, but Willie, I mean, <laughs> we've seen the, the, the vindictive Doug Ford from time to time, too. Uh, you know, he wasn't a big fan of John Tory when John Tory first became mayor because he, they were opponents, political opponents. Uh, and that's, of course, when he went through and, and you know, chopped the, the number of people in Toronto Council to size. And, and the city of Toronto needs him on side, don't they? I mean, a lot of the stuff that all of these candidates have been talking about over the last few weeks, uh, you know, the, the Gardner Expressway, the future of the Gardner, what's going to it's all going to it's going to require a lot of money. And a lot of that's going to have to be provincial money if uh, the premier so wishes it anyway. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. But I think that the big question here is, you know, what does having Doug Ford on your side really get uh, in Toronto? I mean, obviously, you know, recently John Tory, when he was mayor and Doug Ford were, were getting along, um, John Tory is actually the one who requested these strong mayor powers and, and he got mm-hmm. them. But as we know, Toronto's got a big budget hole and has been looking for more uh, cash from both the province and the federal government. And so, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, Doug Ford is going to play nice. uh, But, you know, municipalities are still creatures of the province. And, you know, Olivia Chow, uh, despite what she says about the strong mayor powers um, and whether or not she'll use them, I think whoever is going to be in that seat when push comes to shove, if there's a policy that they really want to get through and they can do it being a strong mayor, then, then they can. And, 
um, you know, I think it's very interesting to see how this all plays out because as we know, you know, uh, Doug Ford has, has, uh, meddled with council, the size of city council. He's done this strong mayor stuff. So I think, you know, a lot of people will, will be questioning what, what could happen next, but I don't think there's going to be any, um, political grudge match in that sense. I think, you know, they might butt heads, but when it counts, if they can both get, you know, this housing crisis in particular dealt with, they'll both play nice because at the end of the day, it's the same voter, right? Uh, mm-hmm. In in Ontario, who, whoever you are, especially in Toronto too, you're, it's the same person voting for you municipally, provincially and federally. And so that's kind of why we see Doug Ford, you know, playing nice uh, with what would typically be his political enemies like Justin Trudeau, you know, liberal prime minister uh, in, in Ottawa too. So I, I don't think it's going to be too much of a, of a clash, but of course, during a campaign, things can get pretty rough. Absolutely. And they sure have in this one. I'll be watching with great interest on this. And of course, you're reporting on it uh, in the days ahead too. Sabrina, thanks so much for this. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Sabrina Nanz, your publisher of Queen's Park Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was uh, not a pretty sight at Tim Horton Field on uh, Friday. Uh, the Tiger Cats, uh, here's the takeaway, are still winless this season. And uh, still not looking like a very good football team, quite frankly. Uh, our next guest can uh, maybe explain exactly what's going on and what they need to do to pull themselves out of this funk. Uh, he is uh, Coach Sal, John Salavanis, analyst with the Tiger Cat Audio Network and, of course, a former coach with the Tiger Cats. Uh, Sal, great to talk with you. I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this today. Uh, hey, talk to know, us a little bit about it. always a pleasure to talk to you, and it's an honor to be on your show. <laughs> well, uh, we we ran into each other at the game on Friday, and I just said it's been too long since you've been on here, and I know you've been busy with the Tiger Cat Network stuff uh, and your brilliant analysis. Uh, what did you see Friday night? Uh, or maybe more to the point, what didn't you see Friday night from this football team? Well, you know, Bill, if, if we could use an analogy, uh, in golf the saying goes, uh, you drive for show and you putt for dough. Throwing deep, that provides a good show. But uh, to win, you need to have that short game, that second down and and three, that uh, third down and one. You have to consistently convert those to win ball games. And Hamilton, uh, thus far, has not been able to do that. In in any of their games, really. I mean, this, you know, Friday night was really kind of a microcosm of the things that seem to bother these guys at the most. You're right. Uh, There's a lot of two and outs here. And, you know, a couple of spectacular catches downfield. Uh, but it's, it's, it's like that old phrase, isn't it, Sal, that uh, way back when, when the forward pass was first started, he said three things can happen and two of them are bad. <laughs> You're um, right. And, and, and well, we, we seem to be getting the two bad ones most of the time. Yes, we, we, we're getting a short end on, on those uh, three for sure. And, you know, a lot of it, is, I think, goes back to the idea, Bill, that uh, especially in this game, we're not balanced on offense. Uh, you know, 47 passes against five runs. Uh, that, that to me tells me that there's no balance in what they're doing. And, and your giveaway takeaway uh, is, is always seemed to be in favor of the opponents. You know, in this game, we gave it away uh, three, well, in three games, we've given it away six times on interceptions, and we've got zero uh, interceptions ourselves. And that and that points to some of the concerns that uh, the team had, didn't it, Sal, right at the beginning of the season. Uh, lost a lot of free agents. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of them scored a touchdown on, on a pick six uh, on Friday uh, when Evans picked one off and ran it back the distance. Uh, he was in black and gold last year, for fans that may have forgotten about that. Uh, 
But so there are people there that are inexperienced uh, in the secondary, and I get that, and 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 we all know that that takes time to, to get acclimatized to that. But there's some veterans back there too. Do you think would kind of pick up some of that slack? Well, here's my opinion on, on what's got to happen, Bill. Is they've got to get a pass rush. They've got to get after the quarterback. You saw uh, Montreal the way they run their blitz packages uh, in a ball game. Noel Thorpe, their defensive coordinator, is great. At, at scheming up ways to get to the quarterback. Now, we only gave up two sacks in that ballgame, and that credit goes to uh, both Schultz being able to move around in the backfield and the patchwork offensive line doing a pretty decent job. But at the same time, the, the secondary is not right now an experienced secondary, in my opinion. Leonard is, and Delke is, is uh, experienced back there. The rest of the guys are pretty inexperienced, and so you've got to give them some help. And that help comes from the pass rush. Make the quarterback throw the football quickly. And whatever's got to be done after that, uh, the secondary can take care of. Well, I'm going to a quick historical reference here, okay? Uh, since I love Tiger Cat football, uh, one of the great victories of the Tiger Cats of all time was 1986 breakup. Um, when you and you were the coach on that team, of course, uh, when you uh, beat the Edmonton Eskimos, uh, everybody said, "Don't even bother showing up." The Eskimos are just too strong. They've got two great quarterbacks. Uh, you made life hell for Damon Allen and for Matt Dunnigan, a young Matt Dunnigan back in those days, uh, in that particular game because you he, they were on their their pants more than they were throwing the football and, and you've got that talent and the talent seems to be on this team too sal i mean you got a guy like jagera davis who's recognized as one of the best pass rushers in the league and has been for the number of years uh i don't see him having any impact at all uh, you got ted larat you've got you've got some good ball players there are they being used properly well you know that's not for me to say whether or not uh, the coaching staff is using them well because uh I think Carney, Sales, Diallo, and, and Davis, uh, along with Laurent, make up uh, as decent a front uh, as you can have. And you referenced the game in 86. Dunnigan was on his backside 13 times in that ball game, uh, and, and that's the way you've got to play it. And, again, I go back to Montreal. That's the way they went after their, their wins. Is They pressure the quarterback. Make the quarterback beat you. Uh, by pressuring him. If you pressure him and he beats you, he's done a good job. Uh, most times he won't be able to get it done. How do they recover? This is an off week for them. They, they get a bye. Um, there's, there's something going on here. Uh, can you just flick a switch? I mean, and, and just, again, the 86 team, you had your problems in the first half of that season too, uh, and you, you you turned it around, and you had some veterans that were really helpful, and, of course, you get a get coaching staff too. We'd be remiss if we didn't say that. Uh, how does this team turn this this thing around? I mean, right now, uh, you know, we don't want more of the same, and I know they don't want more of the same either, but something has to happen here. Well, they've got 14 days to figure it out, and what they've got to do Number one thing they need to do is those players need to get away and get a rest. Now, that sounds uh, maybe a little odd to say, but uh, they need a rest right now. They've come through uh, three tough uh, losses and three tough ball games. Get them a rest. But at the same time, the coaching staff has to get together, and they have to decide what they're going to do the rest of the year. And in terms of that, they have to evaluate everything they've done all the way from training camp to now. And, and you referenced again the 86 team. Al Bruno brought the coaching staff together and said, what do we have to do 
to get ourselves back on track so that we can win uh, the remainder of our ball games. And every coach had something to put into it. And then collectively, they went out on the field and, and uh, actually accomplished it. Well, uh, we're hoping for the same kind of magic this time around. As you say, they've got uh, almost two weeks now uh, to try to get things together here. And uh, 18 games is a long season. So, you know, <laughs> it'd be kind of nice if we could look back sometime in October and say, boy, remember when we didn't think we were going to go for it? Look what's happened since then. Hopefully that's going to be a positive story. Uh, Sal, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for this. Uh, we'll, let's do this again after hopefully a TIGAD victory next time. Oh, that's a great idea. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> I appreciate talking to you. Take care. John Salabatis, analyst with the TICAT Audio Network, and of course, former coach for the Cats. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.